0: Welcome to the Iconic Brands Podcast, where we cover the best e-commerce brands, their story, the playbook that made them successful, and their founders. For each company, we'll discuss the history of the brand and their growth playbook, and we also occasionally do interviews with a founding member. We are here to help you navigate the changing world of e-commerce and to help you build the next iconic brand.
1: All right, guys, super happy about this week's episode. Uh, We're going to talk about Freshly, which is a company I know super well. Um, so back in my days as a VC, I used to work at a firm that was one of the main investors in Freshly called White Star Capital. Uh, we backed the company from its earliest day all the way until the acquisition from Nestle, which was made for $1.5 billion, including earnouts. Um, we decided to talk about Freshly with all of you today for a few reasons. First, it's an interesting case study when it comes to building up a D2C company focused on the food kind of category, especially fresh food. Uh, this is a challenging one. There's perumption going into it. There's, you know, complex production, delivery, all those um, external kind of uh, operational elements that just make creating a startup much more complex. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that, which is super interesting. Then there's the subscription angle, which is cool to uh, explore from a D2C angle once again. They kind of pioneered that model on the food space, especially a very flexible subscription, uh, which was core to their model, which is interesting to explore as well. Uh, And then finally, the entire journey. So it's a company that went through hyper growth from uh, an externally induced kind of environment with the pandemic. Everyone was ordering food. All of a sudden they had to scale their capabilities. They really had to stretch the team thin. Uh, grow very fast in a very high operational complexity business, which is interesting to explore. And then finally, the entire acquisition, the way it unfolded, uh, you know, coming from a strategic investment from Nestle all the way until the acquisition, which itself was structured in a very interesting way. Um, So around all these elements, I think there is cool stuff uh, to kind of explore and jive around. Obviously, as we always do, we're going to discuss about the business in itself, where we saw the biggest strength, but perhaps also some of the reasons of why the company experienced some challenges lately. Um, definitely a very packed and interesting discussion, uh, mostly from a, I would say case study stand- standpoint uh, for all our listeners. Uh, so that's pretty much it. I'm super excited about it. Um, and like all great businesses, it started with a, a founding team, so perhaps I can let you Ben walk us through you know the journey of those two very special founders. A quick note to thank our sponsor, Bloom, for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen.AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but instead Instead, active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you're a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at underscore Art. And help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations.
2: So, Freshly was co-founded by Michael Wistrack and Carter Comstock, two friends uh, from the University of Arizona. So, their background is quite different. Michael actually grew up in a small town in Arizona, where his family was mostly involved in the cattle business for you know years and generations. So, they actually also owned an, an oper- and operated a restaurant. So, Michael, since the beginning of his of his life, actually worked with his parents in the industry. So he has a big and deep knowledge of the food and the service yeah, industry. And anyone working in a ranch, like he got wrecked, right? <laughs> like yeah. He worked a lot. <laughs> he worked a lot. That's for sure. I think uh, he understood, you know, grit and discipline from an early age. That's for sure. Uh, and after, after that, he decided to go uh, to the University of Arizona to study finance and then classic, classic banking route. So he went to New York, where at the equity sales deck at Tommy Weasel.
1: I think he really wanted to become a banker for a while, but he couldn't find a place to become a banker because, as as you know very well, they had, like, their target school, and when you're from Arizona, it's super hard to get seen. So it took him, like, a a few years uh, before becoming a banker, which he didn't like much, I think.
2: Yeah, so maybe it took him a few years to get there, but also didn't took him that long to go out. of <laughs> yeah. the industry. Uh, yeah. So he, think, he thought that, uh, you know, the corporate lifestyle was just not for him, not fulfilling enough. So he decided to venture out and go more into the venture, uh, inter- entrepreneurship type, in it, type of industry. So during those, you know, next few years, he did a couple of different stuff. So from real estate to oil and gas, different kind of experiences and partnerships. So, uh, just to basically talk about two different experiences that he had. I think the first one was Lanai Properties, where him and, you know, three other co-founders decided to just start acquiring and, you know, constructing some different investment opportunities around the residential property sector. In Arizona. In Arizona as well. So just around the university. So they maybe saw an opportunity while he was in college and decided to build around around the university. And then he also did another commercial real estate project uh, which was more more around, you know, building gas stations and a restaurant as well. And finally, before starting Freshly, he decided to open himself, you know, uh, one of his restaurants called The Stakeout, which we're going to be learning after that. Maybe it wasn't really successful, but still, he really tipped his toes into different industries. And as of Carter, so Carter and Michael, they actually met at university, and I think they started to be good friends up to that point and continue to, to talk uh, together. And... Carter, he comes from a, you know, a different background, but finished university with, you know, a business degree as well, had a passion for health and wellness, and he actually started working in business, dev after that. So really doing sales and, you know, helping companies, company grow, which I,
0: I think like those skills at the start, especially for that, which I'll, I'll talk a bit more further down, but those sales skills are going to be, to be like super useful for, for the story. So I think it's, it's a great choice that Mike decided to, to work with Carter.
2: Yeah, I think. So Mike really has the operational side and the finance, the mm-hmm. finance, you know, background and Carter on his side. It's really, you know, the the business focus and sales focus entrepreneur, which you all you mostly need at the beginning of a difficult operational type of business like Freshly.
1: Yeah. I, I think the key thing as well, when you look at like their journey as a, as a pair, uh, is that they were all kind of aligned on the vision of building something really big, uh, which when you think about funding teams, just being aligned on where you want to go is kind of the main thing. Uh, and they were not shy to put in both the time efforts, but also resources. So, you know, when it comes to like maxing credit card uh, and just doing whatever it needs to be done to kind of succeed, they were both there kind of in, in the trenches. Right. I think this is really where uh, the, the pair and the duo kind of shine. It was like uh, two person that trusted one another and were just kind of fully committed towards uh, building this company uh, and well. We'll hear about it right in the first two years of the company. I mean, money was not growing on the trees. Uh, you had to be very crafty to kind of get that business off the ground. So I think this uh, pair uh, really had the mindset, mindset it took to get it done.
2: Absolutely. and yeah. I think that's, that's a perfect segue to just give it up to UPL to just talk a bit about how the story actually played out and how they decided to launch Freshly.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. So kind of like what Ben said, one of Michael's ventures was a, a restaurant and for this restaurant, it they wanted to have like a lot more customers coming in because there weren't as many as they would like. And so that's where they decided to focus on something a bit different. And that's where Mike actually just recently finished a kind of sort of like diet where he felt a lot better just from listening to what his doctor recommended to eat. That's where it was really cool because he decided that with this winning recipe, he'd be like, you know, why not offer it to more people? And so that's where they started making healthy and affordable meals for the generic public. And that's where Mike couldn't obviously do it all on his own, right? So that's where he got Carter involved and he started working together. And that was really cool because Mike and Carter were actually the ones not only cooking it, but also delivering each of the meals, which was made out of Mike's family restaurant in Phoenix, which is really really interesting from my perspective that they did it completely bootstrapped. Is, is really cool.
1: Yeah, I think they had like an underutilized asset with the restaurant, which was 100%. kind of sitting empty, you know, day in, day out. And and when you say kind of available to the public, it's basically friends around him telling him, yo, you look good, man. What are you doing? You know, you lost weight, you feel energized. And he was saying, yo, I have this new diet uh, that a friend of the family kind of recommended to me and, and it works well. And this is, you know, word of, word of mouth. Uh, it started to expand.
0: And that's what I find cool because I feel like back in the day, one of the key pillars for freshly is that it also has to be really tasteful and taste good. Where I feel like back in the day, lots of the people who th- like w- had the associate the thought association of when it's healthy, it's probably not going to taste good. So the fact that they kind of like went across that, I think is really, really good,
1: Man, that's a great point. Like when you think about where we stand today when it comes to food, I mean, we all know that eating vegetarian food can be super tasty. And uh, we all have vegetarian, even vegan friends around us. People are super conscious about what they eat. I mean, you know, we just ate together. We're a group of like four boys. We had like vegetables and eggs. I mean, I think people are a lot more conscious today about the nutrients that needs to go into food and how you eat. Uh, But back then in 2012, uh, it, it wasn't the norm uh, and Freshly was kind of pushing that trend a little bit forward. I, You know, that's a very good point. I think putting ourselves back 11 years, we realize just the way we consume and eat and, and uh, prioritize our food has actually changed quite a
0: lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then just to continue the, the story, I think it's, it's so cool to mention that kind of like how it started as Joe alluded to that he actually just sent an email to 100 people that were obviously his friends and families and talking about kind of like what he was doing. And then that's where he got a really high conversion rate where he started his customer base out of those ones. And I think those customers were so believing in that vision that they actually invested 400 K of their own money, not all of them, but some friends and family invested that, which was really useful for them because during this time, it was like Joe alluded to again, once again, is that, it was very difficult to find the money during this time. And off, they were basically living off the revenue and also the 400K that they raised for two years time.
1: Yeah, so that's how they basically kind of bootstrap the business. Uh, you know, It's always that friends and family around, especially if you're in Arizona and you don't have like such a, even today, like such a deep VC ecosystem. And uh, VC ecosystems, the way they work is that they take time to really develop. So you need to have first funds that invest in companies. Then these companies exit, have success, and then you have ex-members of these companies that either become angel investors or go on to launch their next businesses. So it takes time. Uh, and back then in Arizona, there was just like nothing. So if you wanted to raise capital to kickstart a business, you know, unless you move, it needed to be kind of friends and family driven, which they actually did. Uh, and 400K you know, is not a lot, nope. especially in an operational business where you not only have, you know, software development costs. When you think about the traditional startup, you actually need to buy food, right?
0: And then if like there's food that goes bad as well. So there's absolutely, there's a whole bunch of costs associated with that. And last little point that I wanted to mention is that I thought it was also really cool that they were delivering it as they could get like feedback directly, which is where they actually ended up making 128 different meal options uh, that they were selling before, yeah, they, they, they raised their, their Series A.
1: But after that, they scaled it down. Exactly. Yeah,
0: Which is important, which is something important that we'll, we'll discuss in the playbook as like good business practices. Um, But yeah, and I think after those two years, they just started to see that they were getting a lot more demand for and so much positive feedback that that's where they decided to to scale it at a different level, which, yeah.
1: That's super cool. So I think like to retrospect, just on like the origin story of the business, um. You basically have two friends, like very committed with the same vision, uh, starting off with a personal problem, which was I need to eat better because I'm taking weight. Uh, And they had this underutilized asset that they completely turned around uh, by basically switching the model that they were kind of using. So um, a great example to me of solving, you know, your own pain points uh, and then expanding that uh, and then bootstrapping a business, which is really not easy to do. Uh, especially in a complex space like that. If if we look at like the journey of the company in a little bit more details and kind of picking up where you left off uh, PL, basically uh, Freshly started to uh, expand in Arizona first, which is where the um, company was located back then. They really pushed as much as they could from their initial uh, restaurant. And then pretty quick, quickly they reached out like pure capacity, they couldn't do enough couldn't do more and so they started to expand their operation the first thing they really considered which i think will also be part of the playbook when we discuss is as a startup everything needs to be proven everything needs to be built uh, and they had to make a choice first on what problem to tackle first and what problem to leave for later um there's actually a bunch of interviews with michael talking uh and he's always talking about like the need for founders to be focused and just like really get yourself uh, you know centered on one specific topic or one problem that you're trying to solve instead of you know coming with a plan that has 25 different kind of components to get where you want to go and so to them the first challenges first challenge they needed to solve was how to make Good recipes and good food, food that people would actually like to order again and again, you know, a level of quality that would create um, a level of recurrence in the purchase. And also there was kind of a technical challenge because you had meal kit companies back then, which is basically delivering you the components to cook your own food at home. Uh, But to them, this really was not the purpose of Freshly. Those were guys that hated to cook. They didn't want to cook. They just wanted to eat something. But then the alternative, when this is what you want, it's refrigerated food, you know, super high sodium, like bad, bad quality elements. So how can you have the best of both worlds with quality ingredients, fresh, and you don't have anything to cook? Uh, and this is kind of the challenge they wanted to tackle in the first place. You know, when Can we make that possible? And this means that another challenge, which is all the operations and logistics, how do you get that delivered to different places, uh, was a problem to be solved, but not the one that they solved directly. So what they did was actually partner with FedEx uh, as kind of their uh, delivery partner for everything related to the meals. They were kind of prepping, and this was a huge accelerant for the business because right from the get-go, you start with uh, shipping capabilities uh, that basically expand kind of nationwide. Uh, this is not what they did. They went by growing you know, mostly state-by-state, uh, but having kind of leave left that problem for later on, to me, is a, is a very interesting thing to note when you when you hear about Freshly's kind of journey, especially for you know aspiring founders or founders that listen to us right now. Uh, there's always going to be challenge and you need to be tackling the right one at the right time. And then as you grow, you kind of take more and more and more and more. This was a team in Glossier as well, which we kind of explored.
0: And kind of like you touched upon, it's kind of like accepting the fact that you're really, really good at one thing, And like FedEx is good at another and accepting that like they'll be taking responsibility on that front.
1: Yeah, like a hundred percent. All right. So next part in Freshly journey was the beginning of what became a very long and fruitful journey of fundraising capital to bootstrap the business. All right. So as we said, they raised kind of their um, first 400K from friends and family then it became time to kind of accelerate and scale things. They were getting enough traction in Arizona. They felt that expanding was kind of the right move to make. And so they raised their second round, uh, which was a $2 million round. Well, $1.5 round, if you want to round it up, in 2015. So we are now three years post-launch of the business. They've lived off you know, revenues, very small team, uh, a small friends and family round. And now they're raising this seed round after kind of three years of being in operation. 1.5 billion is not a whole lot uh, of money, especially in a business like that, but they use that, uh, to, I'm pretty sure the the funding round was, uh, given by brand project, which is kind of a, uh, incubator slash fund. Um, and yeah, this was kind of a smaller round. I'm, I think White Star participated a small check in that, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. What I do know is that White Star was an investor in Brand Project, so they invested in that. Can so that's that's a playbook, interesting playbook you know, for everyone to hear. But sometimes VC fund they invest in incubators just as a way. First, it gives money to the incubator. That's great if the incubator is doing returns. That's that's amazing. But it's also a way to get uh, deal flow. So you get to know you know from this. Uh, uh, incubators kind of uh, quarterly report what business are doing well and not well it's a great kind of funnel in the case of White Star it obviously paid off greatly uh, so it was well worth the investment business grows and then they raised uh, very shortly after in 2016 the scaling phase kind of really start and they raised a 7 million round from Island Ventures um, which is a great fund uh, based in New York and uh, at that time it becomes kind of clear uh, for Freshly that they need to move their operations from, or at least consider moving their operations from uh, Arizona to either New York or San Francisco. The key reasons being uh, at this point in time with the scale that they were getting, marketing skills uh, and getting the brand known was quickly becoming the next key challenges, the, the key challenge they'll have to face. Uh, And marketing expertise was not something that was kind of uh, running around the streets in Arizona. Uh, but in New York, it was kind of the DNA, you know, really what was in their blood. Um, and also by being in New York, there was a lot more intros and help that the VCs could kind of bring, uh, to this, to this company. Uh, and so they considered it and then they moved uh, to New York within a year, you know, within that same year, they expanded to 28 states, uh, with their delivery. So grew very, very rapidly from that point onward. And in the same year, you know, same year after raising their 7 million, they raised a the 21 million series A led by IVP, which is, you know, a leading venture firm. So going extremely well. 2016 uh, really was an inflection point for that business. I think it this and the pandemic were the two most transformative years uh, in terms of acquired scale from where it stood, you know, on day one of the year. Um, so this was kind of a, an amazing, they continue their development. And then the next chapter, um, is the one that is to me the most kind of exciting. It was the series C, uh, coming from a strategic investor, uh, 77 million round led by Nestle, uh, Nestle us to be kind of more specific, uh, and there are a few advantages and disadvantages in being kind of invested in by a strategic VC. The first one, uh, strategic uh, strategic uh, investor, sorry. Uh, the first one, the plus, uh, is that you get a lot of expertise sharing, which is great. So obviously Nestle has a vested interest in helping you grow from that point. And they have obviously enormous resources when it comes to like sourcing and logistics and all that kind of thing. So the, the synergies you're able to get from that are significant. Uh, So this was kind of a great news. And it's also an amazing way to work with what could potentially one day become an acquirer. So you get to know the people, you know, build a relationship, um, which is usually something that helps when an acquisition happens. Uh, So this happened for them. Um, You know, at that point in time, you know, the company was uh, present in 48 states in the US. Um, It was shipping 1 million meals per week. Uh, by 20 for 2020. And yeah, in 2020, they also they were also making around 400 to 500 millions of sales every year. So uh, it was really kind of a growth journey, 2016, you know, big change, a parabolic change. And then during the pandemic, the company just kind of exploded. Uh, all across the country, people were doing a lot. They had to scale a lot, you know, hire a lot of people just to kind of serve the operational kind of uh, needs of the business at that point in time. And it's really at that peak demand uh, that the Nestle deal kind of came together. Uh, And we're going to have a segment really focused on the acquisition because there's a lot of elements going on. But I recall when we were kind of internally at White Star thinking about this business kind of really doing well. Once again, you know, they surprised us at every step of the journey just by over-executing. I think this was an execution machine and their vision of food moving online Obviously, was accelerated by COVID, just like any businesses moving online. But I think it's something we're still very early on, um, you know, food moving online. Obviously, you look at plays like DoorDash and their valuation. Currently, this is not a thesis that's dying. It's actually a thesis that's just getting going. Uh, it's obviously a challenging one from an operational standpoint. And DoorDash had to do so many things to be you know just unit economics per, uh, positive uh, I, I don't know what's their payback in terms like of deliveries with any users or dash that, that could be kind of interesting analysis to do but yeah i, I just think the digitalization of food uh, is is day one in this entire journey and freshly definitely was kind of a pioneer in in all of that and yeah and so when it comes to like the journey all the way to the acquisition 2020 things are exploding because of COVID. nestle mentions that they have interest in acquiring the business but then as an acquirer, there's obviously kind of a big risk, which is, well, lots of that growth has been driven by external factors. How much of that is really going to stick around? Um, <clears throat> this is first question. then, you know, the higher the bunch of people, will this company be profitable uh, soon, right? Can we make that a profitable company? And obviously as a publicly tr- traded company, uh, Nestle, you know, they do reporting, um, yeah, so so they have like a standard they need to hold themselves kind of accountable to. Um and so they've made an the acquisition in an interesting format. I don't know, Ben, if you want to tell us a little bit about the way the acquisition was kind of structured, you know, the different trenches and components, and then we can dive into the story of the acquisition.
2: Yeah, so basically what they did in order to edge their risk, because there was, you know, of one of a kind type of acquisition was the first time a big CPG company would buy, you know, one of those you know, home, good, uh, home type of boxes delivery type of company. So there's there's different companies like that, but it was still the first time a CPG would, would acquire those. So we've seen the, the cases where it's actually grocery stores and, you know, other more, you know, traditional models that, that would benefit from those synergies. But from a CPG standpoint, that was basically a really interesting, uh, an interesting move from Nestle. But in terms of the structure to edge their risk, so basically they paid them, 950 million dollars and you know com- in typical you know acquisition price but also there was a big earnout factor so in terms of the earnout I don't remember if it was, it was 500 million or 550 550, 550.
1: Yeah. and can you explain what what
2: an earnout is for yeah the- so basically an earnout provision means that in order to get you know the the later part of the payment so the 550 million you gotta it certain thresholds you know, of performance along, among the years. So I don't know what were the specific of that contract. So maybe Joe or PL, you have more details around it. Yeah, but
1: so they were uh, revenue and EBITDA thresholds that they needed to hit. So specific numbers. So you need to have revenues of that, EBITDA of that in that year, same next year. You know. So uh, the, it was split 50-50. So if you reach that EBITDA,
2: you get 50 of the earn out. If you reach the revenue, you get 50 of the earn out. So basically that creates, you know, a, a bit, a best, a, be, a bigger incentive between the two parties to collaborate together and, you know, achieve profitability for those, a bit, def, a bit, the compensation, uh, provisions and also, you know, continue growing and expanding the business at those revenue thresholds as well. So basically lower risk for Nestle and better alignment between the two parties, but maybe not, maybe not the best structure for any type of deals.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so that deal kind of came together and it was really a great news when it came together. A strategic buyer, um, an expansion for Nestle going into kind of the D2C angle. Both parties had been working together for quite some time. And so on the outset, everything seemed to be going kind of really well when that deal hit. Um, And then it's time to talk about kind of the darker days or perhaps the way things actually unfolded, which uh, is obviously unfortunate, but basically post that acquisition, it became very hard for Freshly to operate within uh, the uh, castle of Nestle. Interestingly, uh, there's actually been a lawsuit announced, uh, I think about a month ago, a little bit more than a month ago where, the main investors of freshly, including my uh, prior employer, White Star Capital, sued Nestle, saying that they owed them uh, a um, an earnout payment, which they hadn't done. And the kind of argument behind that is that Nestle didn't allow uh, Michael Wistrack to pursue his growth objective as he, you know, would have intended it to, and they actually kind of ex- escorted him out. So didn't even give him the chance to earn the earnout, out. And this is a, a comment that was kind of, a, you know, backed by someone close to the mother uh, inside Nestle, which was, you know, every inquiry or budget that Michael was doing was kind of blocked by by Nestle. Um, in December of 2022, Nestle actually announced that uh, Freshly will cease its D2C operation altogether, um, which was you know, basically the entire business at this stage, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the huge majority of it. Uh, and in 2022 as well, November 2022, I believe, uh, Nestle actually sold to private equity firm, Al Carterton, uh, 59% of Freshly, and they keep like the remaining 41%. The goal for uh, Al Carterton was actually to roll up uh, the Freshly asset within another of their portfolio companies in the food business. Uh, And so you basically have this situation where there's a business that had been doing extremely well from like funding all the way to acquisition. Acquisition at peak market value, considering, you know, obviously the external environment around it. And then in only two years post that acquisition, a complete, I would say, collapse, right? All the way until shutting down the DTC operations. And just a very poorly, I would say, executed acquisition altogether uh the integration it's obviously you know a total failure when you spend like a billion dollar and 2 years after it's it's either you clearly lack judgment or you clearly lacked integration skills or you know the, the startup that you acquired really wasn't focused on helping you kind of succeed as a business um but there's something you know there's a bunch of things that have gone kind of horribly wrong in that context and I'm uh, I'm, I'm curious to talk you know in the playbook session a bit more you know about that with with all of you. But those are the details, kind of the main details around the acquisition. So basically, acquired by Nestle, complete snafu. Uh, and then, you know, Nestle sold the majority part of the stake to an external private equity firm. I don't have details on the numbers, but I really don't expect that they earn, you know, one, one buck for one buck here. I think they got, you know, uh, a pretty big discount when it comes to El uh, Alcatraz acquisition. And then shutting down like the entire D2C operations are freshly So. And then a lawsuit, right? So a very rapid and negative kind of turn of events, you know, post that acquisition, but also tied with you know the end of the pandemic, right? So some macro
2: factors around that as well. For me, I for me, it's from a financial standpoint, it's a really good acquisition when you look at it from you know the sell side perspective. So for the VCs and the founders themselves, so they timed it perfectly with the peak hype in that in that market and valuation, which were really high and money was just flowing from the sky because of low interest rates. So they actually, you know, even that $950 million that they they raised without the provision was actually maybe more than what the, the company was actually worth two years later for that those same, you know, those same operation and fa- facilities that they had. So it was basically a brilliant and brilliant timely sell. sell but at the same time, from Nestle perspective, it was, you know, one kind of a kind acquisition. It was also... It was also something that was really confusing for people in this industry and you know sell sell side analysts who were covering Nestle at, at the time because it was not the same model for a publicly you know CPG type of company that is you know followed really meticulously because of their profit margins and the fact that they spend really low on marketing costs in order to you know attract their customers and keep them you know with recurring profits. It was a totally different a different type of model, so some were wondering are they buying them because they have a really different type of products, product cues? because they had, you know, vegan, uh, vegan type of products and gluten-free uh, cheap meals. So that was, you know, all different channels that what Nestle was actually targeting with, with the grocery stores. And also they had big analytics on their consumers. So same thing as we were talking, you know, in the last episode about Glossy and how much, you know, they relied on data in order to make those business decisions. So Nestle would, know that this the different distribution channel was not you know able to get those type of (coughs) analytics so it was another you know basically potential synergy that they could get out of the deal but as it turned out you know the (coughs) unit the unit economics just didn't really make sense in the long run was just dilutive for for nestle in terms of value accrual Mm -hmm. profit margins were not were not you know long term and sustainable sustainable in the long term so basically that product incrementality was, was just not enough, right?
0: I think it's a really interesting point that you covered uh, from Nestle's perspective because I think that maybe something that they were looking at is that if like with pandemic and stuff like that were to extend, they would have also like a kind of a younger brand image, but also that channel of going directly to customer, which I think that right now with like, especially for Nestle with like water balls are a huge seller for them. They Those are for customers that go in stores, right? There's not really a delivery for that. So yeah, there's definitely lots of perspectives that Nestle could have gone yeah. for to buy, but
1: and look, Nestle is like a $270 billion company. A $1 billion acquisition is like 3% of their market cap. I mean, to explore a new channel with like a growing company, it's a bet for them. I mean, they can definitely stomach it. Mm-hmm. Obviously a bad bet, as we know, as we've seen, I think it was a badly integrated bet. I, I, I remain convinced that Freshly is a good business. Um, Very well ran, very well executed. Um, I think it was not bought with the type of freedom for the funding team that would have helped them, you know, continue to scale the business once acquired. Uh, You know, we recall from the investment banking days and Michael said, you know, he wasn't a corporate guy. Uh, Obviously, after running his own business, you know, at that scale for so long, Entering in a very corporate-y type of environment, I think, was a recipe for, you know, the results that we saw. Unless unless he would have been provided with the type of flexibility that made him successful. I think there's a big culture component whenever there's an acquisition. And, you know, people on both sides will
2: say that culture alignment was there. But when you look at the results, obviously something wasn't. I think both of your opinion are true, and you know part of the reason why it didn't work, but also you're neglecting one of the biggest factor, which which is that the the environment just completely changed in two years. So we were talking about peak, you know, demand for that type of offering in the market in 2020. <coughs> so sales were through the roof. Actually, customers were still working at working at home, so eating those meals for lunch. So 50 percent of the of the of the demand coming for freshly was actually for lunch meal. So not for the same type of demand that usually you know boxes that you cook yourself are for more, or mostly for the dinner, so it's a dif- different kind of market. So whenever you go back to work, just you prefer to just go out with your buddies and your coworkers and get lunch. So there's just no demand anymore. You don't want to pay subscription for something that you receive every single week. So there's just no stickiness to that and the environment just completely changed in a matter of years.
1: Look, my, my take on this is when you make an acquisition, you either make that acquisition to generate cash over the next like two years or are you building because you think this becomes a you know platform, a franchise for the next 10 years. <clears throat> food moving online, we're just getting started with that entire trend. Like this is new. I think, what, 10% max, 5% of total food is bought online in the US. I mean, if you believe that this number will triple or quadruple over the next decade, which I surely believe it will at least double, then with Freshly, you have a franchise where you're, you have a brand, you have a network, you have a customer kind of uh, loyalty that you can leverage to tackle that market. I mean, if you tell me, oh, look, the company was supposed to grow and actually shrink by 30% every year because the pandemic stopped, I will tell you. Well, are you surprised? You know what did you expect coming it coming it with the coming in with that acquisition? I mean, it's obvious, but it's only two years after the moment where you bought the company. If you really want to build out a franchise, you need, especially as a strategic investor, having you know such a big war chest. You need to have bigger conviction in the long term thesis, because otherwise you just made it. So, um, for example, okay, I don't know if it's the best example, but I'm going to share it anyway. If you play poker. And you receive your cards. Uh, and then someone raises, and then you pre flop, and then you call. And then someone raises again, and then you fold. So, why did you call the first raise? I mean, oftentimes, if you fold pre flop and the raise was not that significant, I'm not talking about an all in, it's because you didn't have the conviction in the first place to go and see the flop. You need to be judgmental on where, where you're gonna put your limited chips. Uh, and in that case, when I actually follow when someone raises, I usually have the conviction to go at least see the flop and see what's out there. In my perspective, they invested in that business in 2020, 2022, they shut down the D2C angle, meaning that perhaps they should have not made that investment in the first place. If after only two years of challenges,
2: they're not willing to kind of double down behind this vision. I don't know if the poker analogy... You, you really got to remember that in 2020, Nestle had no choice but to go on an acquisition spree. So they did, they acquired actually like multiple firms at the same time because their water business was actually going way down uh, because of the lockdowns across the world. So to, you know, cover that gap in revenue, they had to buy with the cash reserves that they had. So they actually, you know, uh, bought 4.1 billion of, you know, their local currency in, uh, in Switzerland of, you know, businesses. So it's it's actually not just fresh these a you know a big fish in the water of the, the big acquisitions that they did.
1: Yeah, again, I'm sure you understand that this is a bad strategy, right? You don't buy businesses because your core business is going down. You buy businesses because they're great businesses and you want to have them. Uh you know buying businesses is not a defensive move against your core operations not going well. This is you know just a recipe for burning money like they did. Um. Oh, um. My, I'm not selling any bottle of water.
2: I'm going to buy this D2C company in the States for $1 billion. Like what's the rational, right? Yeah. But at the same time, at that time in 2020, people were valuing, you know, and based on revenue and not profits anymore on long-term, you know, potential and those kinds of businesses, like Freshly were actually giving value to the firm. So may, maybe they their stock price benefited from that for a few years until, you know, actually people understood that the operations were going down. But...
0: But at the same time, I, I agree with you that like if you're going to buy something, might as well cherish it, right? Where if you see that it's going down after two years, don't just kill the business, but actually try. Like if you've been in, invested a million, might as well invest a little bit more just to see maybe and like pivot the company to see if there's something there. But then again, at the same time, with big companies like Nestle, sometimes just calling the, the loss is sometimes the way to go.
1: Yeah. I, I think feeling fast has some value. Um, I think it's fine to pull the plug when things are not working. Like, uh, you know, not having a money burner, like all of this makes sense to me. What I'm saying is that this was obvious it will happen. Mm-hmm. Like, are you surprised really that the customer base eroded after COVID? Like who it was obvious that this would happen. If you didn't have a contingency plan made for that scenario when you made the acquisition while you're sleeping right obviously this was going to happen so yeah I I, I just think this was kind of uh, unfortunate and obviously now with the lawsuit you know we'll see we'll see where all of that goes a quick note to thank our sponsor, Bloom, for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but in Instead, active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you are a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, Reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at Let's Bloom underscore Art and help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations. But maybe we can chat quickly about like Freshly as a business, what made it successful, uh, what were kind of the main challenges, and
2: yeah, I think maybe just to wrap it up before jumping into the playbook, I think I'd like to to get your, your point of view on the industry as a whole. You know, you got Blue Apron, you have Hello Fresh that are now, you know, offering those freshly type of already cooked meals that you can do yourselves. There's also, you know, the subscription type of box uh, services market, which is bigger. But what, how do you see though, those markets going forward? Yeah,
1: it's super interesting because when you look at like the food delivery industry, you have all those players like direct to consumer, either milk kit or fresh meal kind of uh, providers. Then you had a, a moment, I don't know if you recall, with uh, Ghost Kitchens, which uh, goes kitchens for our listeners was basically a concept where people were spinning up kitchens, uh, not restaurants, just like pure kitchens. So very cheap on the square foot basis. Uh, and they were mainly selling via Uber eat or DoorDash. Uh, so just like digital stores almost only selling through digital channels. And then you can save a lot on just the cost and it's optimized to be a kitchen. Sometimes a kitchen would be three different restaurants, uh, it's interesting, there was even a wave with Uber Eats kind of pushing that. When you think about it, Uber Eats knows exactly what people like to order, right? And they could actually, with their data, see if an area was actually under-delivering on like the sushi part uh, because people are not doing as much sushis as they should, you know, given the demographics that they had. And then they could spin up a sushi, short there, a sushi shop there uh, and then, you know, kind of cover that offering gap. I was kind of bullish on the goes kitchen angle especially for uh delivers um like uber eats and 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 eventually like potentially doordash and didn't prove out to be so much of a success i think just because of like the unit economics of our restaurants are super hard even if you sell kind of mainly digitally um so my my answer like towards the entire industry i think a restaurant business i think preparing food and making margin on food Creation is very hard. Uh, so that's first thing. You're not going to have a ton of margin whenever food is what you're selling. Uh, there's only... So there's the raw cost, right, of your food, especially in a highly infl- inflationary environment. Like right now, it's, it's kind of super expensive to do. But then my point is the margin you're able to go get from prepping great food when you're delivered is capped. It's not like software, you when you you can actually build something cost you one million and then you generate you know one million per year for like 10 years with it. With food, you're capped at like 20, 30 percent margin on top of your cog's max if you want to be competitive when people like decide to purchase. And so with that, with that leeway of twenty to thirty percent after you prepare the food, then you need to do all the rest, which in the case of Freshly was acquiring customer, delivering to customer. Um, And those are expensive things to do, especially as we've seen with Glossier, like customer acquisition costs going through the roof, growing 5x on Facebook between 2011 and 2021. Uh, And Facebook, Instagram were the biggest acquisition channels for for Freshly. Back then it was super lucrative to do, but now it's very expensive. Like any D2C business are struggling and there's obviously lots of providers uh, going into that. So the point where I'm trying to go with that, I think food whenever you prepare food, whenever you touch food, it's a low margin business. Uh, and so if you start with that basis to try afterward to generate margin and cash flows and then you need to deliver on top, I just think it's a very, very hard business to make the economics work. Look, HelloFresh, Blue Apron, I mean, those are publicly traded companies. You can see the numbers. I've seen like the financials I've done. Analysis on both companies' financials. I mean, their stock performance talks for itself, right? I mean, those are businesses that struggle to turn a profit straight up, like they can't make any money. Um, so I'm not bullish on just like, f- I'm, I'm bullish on like the food industry going more digital. I just think that whenever you prepare the food, then you start to get into a business that's very hard from like a unit economic standpoint.
0: And that's what I th- like. I'd like to touch upon it as well, because just because Joe touched upon like the margins where I think that it also goes back to Freshly's like original mission, which was like helping healthy food for people that are very, very busy, where that's where I'd like the only kind of not the only, but like one segment of population that I think could be useful is for people that are extremely busy or maybe for companies that are trying to bring back people to come to their office regularly. Where if they were to come on like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, those three days they'd be able to get like a, a freshly meal for for lunch for free. Where maybe that's like something that could be could be interesting, but then again, for those three different companies like Freshly, Blue Apron, and like a whole bunch of others, that does become a bit more challenging to do.
2: So I see, I see the the, the great reset in the sense that the old industry is gonna you know fade off of that VC money there's still going to be a niche demand and the market is going to still remain narrow. In a sense, there's, there's some people where for which you know, receiving those meals at their door already prepped or ready for, you know, a 15 minute cooking is so much valuable. They're going to pay any price for it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's still going to be a, a, a it's narrow, but there, a, there's a pocket of demand that's going to stay. And I think some kind of, some companies will, will thrive on that, but there's going to be a big reset. Exactly. Yeah.
1: When you look at businesses like DoorDash and just evaluations that they get, when you look at Uber Eats, how much money that's actually bringing to Uber and, you know, how synergistic it is with like their, their core kind of, uh, mobility operations. I mean, there is definitely a future, a very sunny and shiny future when it comes to like the future of food tech. Um, my The only point I'm trying to make, kind of answering to your question, is direct to consumer food when you need to prepare the food. Where, when you're not uncoupling the food preparation part from like the company part, the, the tech company part, I think this is where the unit economics become, become hard to kind of carry on and just have like a very profitable business.
0: And in terms of behaviors, that's where I think another point that you touch upon really interesting that was also like in regards to Dorjas and Uber is that there's no commitment attached to those ones where as opposed to this one with like freshly you have to do yeah you, you do have a commitment where that's something that i think was one of the challenge uh that i think was one of kind of like brought the downfall of, of freshly um and i know ben you brought up like some some really cool stats about that the nicest stats
1: uh, is actually ben living off mail kit companies for free for six months. And perhaps you can tell us about your experience as a customer.
2: Yeah. So basically last year I was living with two roommates and we actually found a loophole in the HelloFresh type of you no know, business model, which means that you were actually just needing of a new email address. And I was not the one doing it myself, just for legal reasons and matters. I want to specify that. Yeah, no,
1: this is a friend, a gay that you've met once in a bar. I told you this. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, Exactly but basically so just with one new email address you would basically receive a free box of you know four or five portion times four meals for free in order for you
1: five portion times four, five four, meals
2: four portions four times you know four or five meals depending on the package that you that oh you take God. and then you you can actually for the next boxes you you pay but for the first one is actually free so each week Getting a new email address, getting my my big box with four meals for the whole for the whole you know roommates and you know bringing a friend also to to come eat with us and also repeating the process so eating for free and, for and a couple was of that, months.
0: Was that with flyers that you would have to like enter a code as well, or you just like okay. on their website you would just have to put in your so email? So
2: basically, when you receive a box, there's a bunch of cards inside that gives you that same coupon that you got for yourself. <laughs> To give to another person so you just keep it for a new email address right <laughs> so i wasn't the one doing it just to specify but yeah it's basically a loophole that i assume a lot of people use
0: that's so crazy no it's crazy <laughs>
2: and when like these companies they
1: know man they know it like this is growth for them yeah.
2: rota growth at, at any price right there's garp no <laughs> Growth for a
1: reasonable price. Growth at any price. Gap. at any cost. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but yeah, so basically, I think there's a future for for that for that food tech industry, but it's gonna be a whole lot different than it was in 2020. So perhaps we can go with the playbook. Yeah. And why Freshly All was right. successful? All right. So
1: so one of the reasons why they were so successful was their use of data. Uh, they were a real, real, real. um really focused company on data when it came to decided what what um, what food to put together and to offer. Uh, so extremely data-driven in how they conceive their meals, which type of meals for which state, um, you know, the cost of these meals, like uh, extremely sophisticated from an early point in time. Uh, this was in big part thanks to their CTO. Uh, first name is Alberto. Like he really created a... Firm that prouded itself on being extremely data driven in an industry that wasn't that much, uh, so they created like this data science muscle uh, in how they conceived their entire menu uh, really well, and I think this was kind of a big differentiator for the company, especially people that had kind of close access to how this was actually thought about internally. Um, so this was great, like uh, definitely a differentiator for the business. Then another area of the playbook which I really like is Michael's focus uh, you know commitment to focus and tackling the right problem at the right time and not trying to do everything all at once there's going to be time to solve each problem and you need to be focused, focused, focused on the biggest problem in front of you. Um, this this to me is uh, really a sign of a great founder. Um, I once asked folks at my previous VC firm um during the pandemic, actually, how were acting the best CEOs in the boardroom? Um, because obviously I could see the CEOs I covered in my investments, but I I was kind of a younger VC, didn't see, you know, hundreds of different founders in different kind of setup. And I wanted to understand, like, how are the best founders kind of acting in, in, in the um, in the boardroom when there's like heated moments or challenging moments like that? Uh, and I received a very interesting answer. They actually told me that you see the best founders, CEOs in the boardroom, they, they all have different styles. Okay, so sometimes some are calm, some are more energetic, some are more intense. But they say the people that they bring with, that, with them When they hear the founder CEO kind of talk and share what needs to be done, they all look like as if they were ready to go to war or just like they were listening and and following and agreeing what the founder was actually seeing. So you can see the the leadership skills transpire in how the other kind of close member of that team react whenever that person is talking about the plan. And they said Michael is the best they've seen. You know, that person I asked said whenever Michael was talking, there were members of his team in the boardroom. And you could see that what he was saying was the plan and that people would do the plan, you know, no matter what. Like they were kind of committed and aligned behind that. I thought this was an interesting angle because everyone has this different style, that's true. But that leadership skill, kind of core leadership capacity to uh, make people feel involved in that mission and following you, uh, I never thought about actually look, looking at it this way. Uh, it resonated with me when they said that. I think that's something I remember. That's a cool,
2: cool way to think yeah, about it. Yeah, it also aligns with one of the big segments that I would be mentioning a bit later, but I can go through it right now. But basically the company DNA and the structure was for me one of the big differentiators for which Freshly actually worked. So uh, like you said, Michael actually established a cult, like a culture was really people-driven and mission-driven. So everybody was aligned toward the same mission and same, you know, a, you know, compensation at the end for the company to work. Right. Yeah. Then in terms of data, as you said, everybody was data driven in an industry, which wasn't. So they basically were innovating in that sense, then speed. So whenever they had, you know, a new challenge to pursue, to tackle, or, you know, an opportunity to pursue, Michael was actually open for people to lead those initiatives and lead them fast with budget. So, they were actually able to execute really, really fast.
1: That's a great point, man. The way they opened up like new states in a very kind of localized, you know, type of business Mm -hmm. where they had to get known every state they were kind of going. You need to have founders that are good at empowering their team. And this was like exactly what he did. So that's
2: a great point. There was a freedom to fail. That's what the CTO said. And it was a climate of LT chaos, Right which we often see in a startup environment, but basically for that to be inside the cultural playbook is amazing. For LT me. chaos. And wow. Yeah.
0: And I think like that's kind of like all the ingredients that you need to make a an execution beast of a company, which is basically why, like you said, Freshly was so successful. I think
2: the second branch that you need is what I'm going to, talk about just right now is the operating model. So if you have a culture playbook, but then the, the teams are structured in a way that it doesn't get executed, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And for them, what they did was actually to make, you know, an operating, an operating model that is based on cross, cross functionality. Yeah. So there was a group pod and a feature pod. Those two pods were actually based with, you know, mixed with people from the marketing team, but as well from the product engineering and data team, all working together in order to, you know, tackle those challenges and those growth opportunities all together and you reflect on their work and build something together, which you don't have to see at, at startups. Sometimes the marketing team is working on their stuff and then the operational team are, are working on their dev problem. And basically you're growing too fast so they don't communicate and you then just lose money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alberto was a big part
1: in, in setting that kind of cross-functional business together. Yeah, and maybe two last point I would mention kind of on the playbook, on, at least on my perspective is Like Glossier, and, you know, we've talked about two, I would say, businesses that have been around for a while. Um, They really benefited from the rise of Instagram and Facebook ads when that channel of acquisition was still very lucrative. Um, You know, back in 2015, 16, 17, those were extremely way, uh, you know, extremely lucrative way of advertising, freshly fresh food, you know, that you can easily take pictures of and share uh, that's a great channel for acquisition so they really benefited from the rise of social media and the food influencer kind of culture uh, so that timing was great and then the last point is obviously scale you know as they grew that partnership with Nestle um although you know it ended badly those were things that really helped the company scale and they approached scale in in an intelligent way where they overscaled themselves through the fedex partnership meaning that they were able to be a lot bigger and reach broader than they should have at that point in time because they partnered with a big player. And then with Nestle, once again, this helped them a lot. Then they went like, you know, national, basically 48 states. Um, So scale was kind of a big part of that company. Um, Just being able to also reduce their cost and and, and stuff like that. So in that playbook, I think data first, we're right. I think the way they organize the team culture, but also cross-functional is definitely one uh the scale uh was kind of a big factor and also that timing alignment with the social media food influencer you know cheap cap kind of uh journey uh was kind of you know to me at least the biggest point of like what drove the success of this company i wonder you know back in 2014 for example or 15 i'm not sure but when white star invested I'm pretty sure I read that initial memo because I had read like initial memos of all our investments. I think they really like Michael. It's crazy, huh? Like they like the fact that he had a banking background as well, even though he just stayed for two years in banking. Obviously hated it because you don't leave banking after two years unless you hate it.
2: When you have 3,000 employees and everybody likes you in that firm, so there's a big, you know...
1: You know, yeah, he was loved. He was, he was loved. loved, loved so CEO. Basically,
2: you have no choice but to, to love him yourself, or basically, that love transpires to the board as well, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he was a a, a very special
2: CEO. Yeah, and he, he
1: just started like another company with his sister, uh, OneVet, in which White Star is a big investor as well. I it
2: was non profit.
1: Uh, well, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it turned to a non profit, but when I was there, I
2: can guarantee you it was not. So it's actually in the veterinary space, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, called Pet Folk. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Petfolk started name one vet and then they changed it to petfolk. Yeah. Uh, exciting business. I mean, uh, Westar made great investment in the kind of, uh, food category or I would say, uh, yeah, animals category with a company called butter.box, um, was a real success. Still is a real success. Uh, actually quite some parallels with freshly. It's a direct to consumer pet food delivery company, uh, vertically integrated, uh, Launched by 2X, I don't know, I want to say bankers, but I think they were traders from Goldman Sachs. Interestingly, that company, Better Not Bucks, it's the company within the entire portfolios of White Star that has the highest employee satisfaction score. Wow. Yeah. People can bring their food to work. They just have a very nice culture. The company is doing extremely well. Um I think this big type of operational business when you have founders with like a a strong math background or just, you know, numbers driven, it helps uh, because it's all about the numbers, right? How much you're so you need to be kind of well versed with this,
0: especially for like high growth and kind of like with the DTC aspect, like you mentioned, I feel like those people are also very logical and like can take all the different steps in order to make the DTC really happen
2: absolutely and I, I think comcast is also going to stay in the space in the d2c space so he's now an angel and a venture partner in a lot of funds and a lot of firms and he's also like backing the best out there of d2c companies so they're gonna continue to use their expertise for the good of, of the industry so maybe for your next venture there it they might be might be there
1: maybe there yeah all right guys it's a wrap uh it was super cool talking about this company's journey um sad ending for a great company you know that has done a lot of great things I'm curious to see what the ending is going to be <coughs> for uh, personal financial reasons <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's see that uh, but anyhow it was a cool one very excited about the Nest business we're going to be talking about uh, don't want to spoil it for now I also want to make sure we can actually gather enough information on it uh, but if we do I think it's going to be an amazing chat uh, so this one was really cool uh, company as I said that I know well uh, walked us through the evolution of the food space and the digitalization of it um, and yeah that's pretty much it thanks Ben thanks Bill
0: awesome thanks yeah. so much
1: bye ciao, ciao.